Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Matina Alange from the Department of Integrated Biology and also a fellow host of The Graduates. Hey, Andrew. So great to have you here, Matina. We're really excited to hear a couple more interviews produced by you this semester. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Way to plug that. <laughs> so stay tuned. So, Matina, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm great. Cool, cool. Unlike all of the other hosts, current hosts of The Graduates, you do not study biomechanics. That's true, yeah. I'm you, the one standalone non-biomechanics nerd. Yeah, you study... So I would also say I'm a physiologist. So do you? would you call yourself a physiologist? or mm. why, do we, why do we have to find a label? That's, 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 a, a, yeah. that's a good point, good point. Uh, Science is so interdisciplinary, right? Yeah. We don't need to be labeled and yeah. sequestered. I think that's a really hard question, and people ask it a lot of anyone who is involved in science, but I think I would call myself an ecophysiologist. Okay. Cool. So you're interested in how organisms are relating to their environment and how energy is moving, not just through an organism, but through the ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What What do you study in that? You, you look at birds yeah, and so, bats. And bats, yeah, <laughs> flying things. I love things that fly. Yeah, so I guess in general, my questions seem to centralize around this idea that Every animal is juggling a lot of energetic demands, just like people. So we have to make conscious and strategic decisions about what we choose to prioritize at any moment in time, and animals do the same thing. And a lot of that is impacted by the particular environment that they're in. So in terms of birds and bats, they're interesting because they fly, obviously, but flight is a pretty costly activity, especially for mammals who also have added demands in terms of reproductive activities like pregnancy and lactation, which are also really energetically demanding. But I mean, birds have to create their offspring too right (laughs) but i guess it's all that they they make an egg and then they just kind of are done with it yeah i mean you shouldn't like diss on bird parents they still put (laughs) a lot of energy into raising babies but it's a little different they don't have to carry around this extra weight and you know shuttle a lot of internal resources to their offspring it's sort of like an investment that they make in this one little package and then they drop it off and take care of the package for a while but they don't have to carry it around and feed it constantly until it hatches, I guess. But <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay. So you're looking at how they navigate those energetic demands and you have a, or is, your work is kind of focused on the reproductive aspect of their biology? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess because reproduction generally is a pretty costly activity for any animal, um, whether it's birds, bats, or any other species. So, and it's also really important, right, for the success of that species. Like, every animal cares about maximizing its fitness, and reproduction is a key part of that. So, um, I think also if, you know, if people are interested in conservation and things like that, um, understanding how animals might prioritize reproduction or not prioritize reproduction at any moment in time can be really important with a changing environment. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so... How do you study these questions? You're kind of looking at 
hormones, right? Yeah. So part of what I study is endocrinology or hormones.、Um, what is a hormone? What is a hormone?、Uh, <laughs> so I guess、uh, the simplest way, if I had to summarize it, is it's、um, a little tiny molecule in your body that serves as a signal,、um, and it has to be transported from one part of your body to the other. So, for example, there are a lot of hormones that are produced in your brain and get. Shuttled through your bloodstream to other tissues in your body.、Uh, in terms of reproduction, that's typically things like your gonads,、um, so ovaries and testes, and、um, yeah, and they just basically tell other tissues what to do at any moment in time. And, and hormones are really cool because they're fast acting. So, for example,、um, if something gets stressed out, like. You know, if a clown snuck up behind you and tapped you on the shoulder and turned you around and scared you, then you would suddenly release a lot of glucocorticoids, which are stress hormones, and that's what sort of gives you that like feeling of having to like run away or jump, and your heart starts racing and all of that. It's a really sort of like primitive response, and hormones are a really primitive type of molecule. Right. So anything that's multicellular theoretically might have. Hormones. Hmm. So I guess、uh, I don't know the answer to that question.、Uh, I think that they definitely have been around. Like I know, obviously, a lot of early, early organisms, like early, early invertebrates, had like the same hormonal pathways that we have now.、Uh, so I assume that you need to have probably at least a bunch of cells and probably. A few different types of tissues that are differentiated within an organism to actually have hormones function. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was. Yeah. The way you said it, I just thought like, okay, you just have to have like one sig one signal molecule be made somewhere and then pass to somewhere else. Yeah. So. Kind of. Yeah. I guess that like there's different types of. I mean, this is a tangent. We shouldn't go down. <laughs> But, <laughs> like hormones can be like released from. Your brain to another tissue in your body,、um, and that's like a hormone functioning in, tr- in the traditional way.、Um, when you have like two cells that are signaling to each other and they're right next to each other, you technically wouldn't call that a hormone because it's not actually traveling to like a far enough location. So、right. there's this certain like distance aspect of endocrinology that's important for calling something a hormone, which is really weird, but. Yeah, that's really interesting. So theoretically, you could have the same molecule pass from a cell to its neighboring cell and not be a hormone, and pass from a cell to a cell like separated by your leg. <laughs> right. Exactly. It would be a hormone. Totally. Yeah. Weird. Yeah.、Okay. Very weird. So then you said we share hormones with. Did you say like invertebrates? Yeah, like a lot of our、um, very, I guess, classical. Endocrine pathways that we have in our bodies,、um, and also birds and bats have the same ones too.、Uh, early invertebrates had the same thing. So this like stress response、um, that happens through a particular connection between your brain and your pituitary gland and your adrenal, and that axis、uh, has existed for you know millions of years and has been relatively unchanged in terms of the molecules involved, but the way it responds to the environment can differ. So stress runs deep. Stress runs really deep. Yeah, cuts deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so are there particular hormones that you're looking at? Ah,、uh, yeah. So I'm mainly interested in things related to regulating reproduction. 
So there are a couple key hormones in the brain, um, something called gonadotropin-releasing hormone and gonadotropin-inhibitory hormone. And you might uh, be able to deduce this, but one is sort of this on switch for reproduction and the other one is an off switch. And they're really sensitive to aspects of you know, an individual's condition, how well it's doing, is it healthy, is it stressed out, is it sick, um, but also sort of cues from the environment. So time of year, photo period, even things like food availability or water availability can turn reproduction on and off, and it usually happens through that sort of on-off switch in the brain. Okay, so this hormone, uh, it tells the birds that they want to mate, basically? Yeah, it will, like, yeah, basically promote the signals that say, okay, hey, you're healthy, everything's good in the place that you live, it's a really good time to reproduce, so, like, yeah, all the on switches for reproduction get turned on. Right, and then so they, all right, so you're looking at this hormone in both birds and bats? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you're, are these animals, like, gregarious do they hang out in like packs <laughs> gregarious wow i'm gonna like start incorporating that into my lingo yeah you should uh, definitely i love that word <laughs> yeah so yeah i would say they're actually very gregarious so the birds that i study are zebra finches and they naturally live in a colony they're native to australia and so they're super social they are happiest when they're in a group and they are also opportunistic breeders so i don't have to wait to do my experiments or, uh, yeah, do my measurements at any particular time of year. Uh, they'll just breed whenever things are good. And since they're uh, the, the birds that I study here in a captive colony, that everything is pretty much good all the time. So <laughs> they're constantly having babies, which is a really good opportunity for me as a grad student. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So these birds, theoretically, they're always around potential mates and they could potentially mate at any point. Uh-huh. Um but you're saying that in the wild, maybe natural cues would prevent them from mating. Yeah, so some of the main things that regulate reproduction for these birds in Australia are uh, either weather or food availability, which is super linked to one another, I guess. So typically, if there's like a really, really dry season and there's not a lot of food, they will shut down their reproductive axis. So uh, there'll be a lot of that inhibitory hormone in their brain. And they won't be interested in reproducing, but they can turn it on really fast. So if food becomes available or if the weather becomes good and temperatures are ideal, then they can reproduce again. So, yeah. But actually, in terms of my work, I'm less interested in how they respond to their environment and more how they deal with managing or prioritizing reproduction when they encounter something unexpected like a pathogen or getting sick. Oh, so yeah. you're making, or you look at birds that have gotten sick. That are, do you have like a virus that you're introducing into the colony or something? Yeah, exactly. So um, one of my projects is using something called lipopolysaccharide, which is not a virus, but it's just a part of a bacteria. Um, and the cool thing about it is that people who are experts in isolating. Uh, things like this have collected this particular protein, this little tiny compound from bacteria, and we can inject it into animals and sort of mimic 
a pathogen attack and stimulate their immune systems without actually making them super, super sick. So I can use this lipopolysaccharide to make the birds feel a little sick for like a day, kind of like a sort of flu symptom. So, um, you know, they become less active. They're more isolated. They want to like snuggle up and stay to themselves. They don't really eat very much. Just like people, it's the same sort of response that we have to feeling sick. Right. Um, Yeah. Okay. So I guess making them sick makes their gonadotropin access say don't mate. Or yeah. that's like theoretically what you're theoretically, looking at. Theoretically, yeah. So um, the funny thing about it is that there's been some work done showing that actually if you make male birds feel sick, um, if they're alone, they'll act sick. They'll do all the things that I just described and sort of feel really bad for themselves. But as soon as you introduce some sort of female bird into their area, they will totally mask their sickness behaviors and take advantage of the mating opportunity. So, uh, that's funny. That's like uh, what the man <laughs> flu thing. Yeah, right? yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so I guess on the one hand, you would expect that yeah, if you feel crappy, you're not going to be interested in reproducing. But at least for male birds, maybe unsurprisingly, they don't seem to really care, and they're like, "Hey, I have this really good opportunity here. I'm not going to let this." Uh, pretty lady know that I'm not feeling so good and I'm going to try and jump on this chance while it's around. Right. So, yeah. But then the females, it's different. They... Yeah, so we don't know. It's a great question. So part of what I'm working on is that aspect of it. So when females are experiencing some sort of immune challenge, how do they make decisions about their reproductive opportunities? Um, and the project I'm working on now is actually looking at how they deal with managing their parental care duties while also... Uh, feeling sick. So more of like, okay, they're already raising babies or invested in reproduction, but now they're experiencing some sort of immune challenge. And how, yeah, how do you choose what's more important in that moment? So that's what I'm working on now. Cool. Yeah. And then you're, you're doing something similar with bats. You're similar like idea seeing how pathogens might affect the reproductive response or so yeah so in a way um it's actually kind of a reverse question so uh the the project that i started in my second year of grad school was looking at uh fruit bats in madagascar and they're particularly interesting in terms of this question about reproduction and immunity because Fruit bats are known reservoirs for really gross and nasty zoonotic diseases. So things like Ebola, um, Hendra virus, rabies, of course, is the famous one. Um, So bats are pretty amazing because they can have all of these viruses and they don't exhibit any pathology. So they don't look sick. They don't get ill. uh, They don't die. Um, That is, that's really, I, I feel like probably this isn't in your wheelhouse and I'm just gonna but do you have any idea like why well yeah why bats yeah so it's not in my wheelhouse uh I'm not an immunologist but there are definitely people who get really stoked about bat immune systems because it is so impressive and if you could like harness that power somehow then you could protect a lot of people especially in countries that are exposed to these diseases uh so yeah I don't know why but um One hypothesis is that they have really, really powerful innate immune systems. So uh, if you, like, think back to anything you learned about the immune system, there's basically these two types of immune 
functions that we have. One is called this innate immune system, and one is the adaptive. And the adaptive system is, you know, the one that contains things like antibodies and your B cells and your T cells, and it's a super specific response. Um, so it's not present all the time. It will only appear in your body when there's something specific to be targeted. And the innate side is more of this like generalist immune production. So uh, there are lots of cells that just sort of float around your body as like a general defense against something that you might be exposed to. And this is typically things like bacteria or fungal infections. Um, and bats, some work has been done by people who are experts in this field, and bats have these really, really heightened innate immune systems that actually protect against viruses, which is somewhat rare. So they seem to have some sort of adaptation within their innate system that um, they can defend against any negative effects of these viruses uh, and not get sick. But they do, of course, have live virus. So the bad thing is that they pass them on to everything that they come in contact right. with. So it's actually like cool that they can do this, but really, really bad for everything else right. around them. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So sorry, I... Cause, or I interrupted you. You were talking about how your yeah the bat uh, project is the inverse to your okay. bird. Project. Yeah, so bats can harbor these gross diseases, which is cool uh, and presumably a little expensive in terms of energy. So uh, the que- the op the sort of question I'm approaching with the fruit bats is how. Uh, sort of maintaining these heightened immune defenses to protect against viral disease might affect their investment in reproduction. Um, Or, alternatively, how uh, their immune systems could be affected in terms of innate versus adaptive immunity across stages of bat reproduction. So, like I said before, bats are really uh, fascinating because they fly, they're mammals, so Females who are pregnant are carrying around all this extra weight um, and shuttling a lot of their food resources to their developing baby. And then even after the baby bats are born, they carry them around everywhere. So uh, it's pretty rare that a baby bat would be left behind. So they're also, again, carrying all this weight for quite a long time. Um, The fruit bats I study, they hang out with their moms for about three months, um, which is, yeah, a lot of extra weight and responsibility and, yeah maintenance for these parents wow and then after the three months the babies are off on their own off on their own yeah independent off to college (laughs) (laughs) so it's not like a it's not like a bird situation where you have you know the the baby birds in the nest waiting for food you don't have bats like hanging from this baby bats hanging from the ceiling waiting for parents to get back i mean there are some species typically smaller types of bats um, occasionally will do this, but it's rare. Most uh, female bats will carry their babies around for the entire time until they're ready to be independent. Um, And males don't really, a lot of bird species do exhibit like biparental care. So both the female and the male will raise the offspring or contribute in some way. And for bats, that's not the case at all. So the females will basically take on all of the parental care duties and males don't really spend any time with the female that they've chosen to pair up with or their baby. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a one-and-done situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting, like, that they're flying around with babies on their... It's so cute. Yeah. But, yeah. It, like, bats, they're, like, a lot of the cool things they do. Like, it, it, 
they need to be really maneuverable, right? In totally. flight. So it's, yeah, yeah it's interesting think, that, yeah. Yeah, I imagine, I mean, I don't study this, but I imagine that there's probably like increased predatory risk and things like that uh, in terms of being a parent bat at any moment in time. You're probably not as agile as you might be otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. This is just a reminder that you're listening to The Graduates, and I'm speaking with Matina Alange. What kind of what kind of things do you actually do in the lab? Like, how do you actually study the immune response of bats? Yeah, so it can be challenging. So some of the work that I do is in the field, and some of it is in the lab. So for a lot of the bat research that I do, it's largely all done um, through sampling stuff in the field. So collecting and catching animals in the wild. Uh, I always do non-terminal sampling on those animals. Bats are a really valuable part of the ecosystem. And there's like a number of things that threaten a lot of the populations across the world. So um, I do my best to never yeah, need to do any research that requires euthanizing any animals um, for that reason. So, of course, like it's a tricky thing, right, if you're interested in hormones and especially things related to the brain or how the brain might be responding to some sort of challenge or regulating reproduction. You can't look at a brain uh, in great detail in a live animal. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's tricky finding that balance, I think, of collecting meaningful data that can inform our decisions and inform our understanding of the biology of these animals, but also making sure that we are respecting them and protecting the populations that exist. Okay. Yeah. So you like in the field, you just kind of take a blood sample or something. Yeah, a lot of the hormone measures are all done in blood, so that makes things quite easy, I guess. And it's amazing, I think, once you start trying to figure out, you know, okay, I have this blood sample. What can I do with it? What information can I get from it? You can get a lot from like a tiny little, you know, drop of blood. Uh, it's impressive. So I can measure hormones. I can measure various aspects of immune function. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful sample. And very easy to take. Okay, so have you always been interested in, I guess, biology in general and more specifically in ecophysiology? Uh, wow. So <laughs> I sort of had a feeling you were going to ask me that, but uh, I still feel unprepared to answer that question. But so I it don't... It be hard to... I know. It's, <laughs> it's like, like really, all of a like, sudden you're just like going personal. along... <laughs> And you're just like, this is what I'm doing. And then someone asks you why. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess I never, I don't have this like glamorous story of like, wow, I picked up dirt when I was five and looked into it and was like, wow, this is amazing. I want to be a biologist kind of thing. I love that your idea of a glamorous story is picking up dirt and looking at it. But anyway, continue. <laughs> um and yeah, and, and I don't come from a family who knows anything, at least about, you know, professional careers in science. Um, my parents aren't academics. Um, they're not science people at all. Uh, so I think science is something I fell into because I was good at it. Like in high school, I did really well in my science classes. And then I sort of you know, when you get to co the time where you have to start considering college, I was like, well, I'm good at this. I might as well keep doing it. Uh, right. So I did. But I think in terms of ending up where I'm at right now, that was more of a journey. Uh, I think I thought, like many people, maybe, uh, and many students that I talk to 
now that I interact with in terms of teaching that medical school is like the career to go into if you're good at biology or interested in biology right. um, or something related to healthcare. And so for a long time in college, I just thought, okay, like I'm going to go to med school. Um, it also sort of fit with like maybe who I was at the time because I was a pretty competitive person and um, I liked to set really high goals for myself. And so I think part of the reason I was interested in med school was only because it seemed hard to do. And so it was like this personal yeah, challenge. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> but then when it when I was like a senior, I realized, oh, I actually don't really care that much about pursuing <laughs> this career. Um, so I sort of spent, you know, four years in undergrad thinking I was going to go to med school, but then realizing I didn't really care, didn't have a passion for that at all relative to other people that clearly did. So, yeah, it took some soul searching, I think, to figure out how what I loved about science and how to make what I love about science what I do on a regular basis. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I've always been interested, I guess, in science, but finding how to make that work for my lifestyle was a little trickier. Right. So, where'd you go to undergrad? I went to Stony Brook University, um, which is on Long Island, New York, all the way on the East Coast. Nice. Yeah. East Coast. East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a fellow East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to Stony Brook and you got through four years uh, thinking you would be going to med school. And then it was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then so what did you do when you graduated? So I took a year off after graduation, mostly because this whole plan that I had for myself, I realized wasn't going to happen, um, wasn't interested in trying to make that happen. So I moved back home, you know, I waited tables, I sort of took time to figure out what other opportunities there are in science outside of going to med school. So that was actually the first time I ever really considered research at all. So I never did research as an undergraduate. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, never stepped in a lab. Um, yeah, I think, and that is probably surprising for anyone who is interested in med school or knows anything about the types of things and experiences you need in order to get to med school. Um, but I think I, like I said before, I just was like never really driven to do it. So I never really sought out research opportunities when I was an undergrad. Um, so you, I, yeah. you were just like, the challenge was like getting all the, doing all the classes and like getting all the A's and all the classes. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Um, so I took a year off and then I ended up deciding to get a master's degree. Um, and part of that I think was also coupled with a pretty strong desire to just move away from home and move out of New York state. Uh, I never lived super far away from home and I sort of felt like, you know, you have this feeling, well, like, nothing is here for me. Like, I grew up here. I need, like, a change of scenery, new people, new place. So a uh, master's program was good academically, but also it was a chance for me to move somewhere totally new, not know anybody, and sort of start over. So I did that, and I moved to Chicago, and I did my master's at DePaul University. It was a super small program. There was, like, eight people in my uh, cohort that that started with me, and that was the first time I ever did research, and I totally, like, fell in love with it, like, pretty hardcore. Um, and that was also my first exposure to physiology, so uh, my project there was a, more of an ecophysiology project as well. So, yeah, so that's sort of probably what led me to my interests here. Cool. And then 
pretty much right after the master's, you wanted you knew that you were going to do a PhD, or so I did. I remember this conversation that I had with my advisor, who was amazing at the time, as I was finishing, and I pretty much did know that I wanted to do a PhD, but I was really, really scared about making the commitment to do it because. Like you know, it takes a long time. You also have to move somewhere new, most likely.、Uh, and I was really comfortable in Chicago, and I really liked my life there.、Um, and I wasn't sure what I really wanted to be in terms of a scientist. I felt like when you decide to get a PhD, and people have varying opinions about this. Mine maybe has changed too, but you sort of are deciding for yourself what you. Are going to become in science,、um, you know. So I wanted to be sure I was selecting a field and selecting a topic that really mattered to me and that I would be excited about in the long run, not just you know what I liked on that day,、uh, right. what's in style, what's in on trend.、Um, and the other thing is, I had a really great master's mentor and advisor, and so I wanted to make sure that I found someone who was going to be. Really great as a PhD advisor too. So I took four years off before starting my program here, and sometimes I look back and think, "Wow, why did I do that? Like I could have been almost done with my PhD or done with my PhD by now." But I think that I grew a lot in that time and figured out who I am as a person and what I like about science. So、um, yeah, sometimes I think, "Man, I'm like on the older side of people." Uh, in my program, but on the other hand, I think that I, yeah, I learned a lot during that time that I wouldn't have learned if I came right into grad school. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, you kind of, yeah, the PhD is just like about learning to be a scientist. So, you know, yeah, what you do you have... learn about life when you're, you know, I feel like. <laughs> 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 That's not true、uh, guess, at all. <laughs> I guess my thought was like, you know, so if you're doing that outside the program, then you know you're basically contributing to that education anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's all part of the process. It's true. Especially if you want to ultimately, I, you want to be an academic scientist ultimately. Yeah, so, I think so. Yeah. You know, if, if you need it, or like if there was something that helped you outside of a PhD program, right? Then that. Is useful to your ultimate career goals. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah.、Um, so, what, did you, in those four years, you worked in a lab, like as a research technician or something like yeah, that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like pretty the you know the standard common job that people might end in, end up in if you have a bachelor's or a master's degree in science.、Um, so yeah, I worked in some labs. I was a technician, helped on other people's projects, lab manager, that kind of thing. But Um, I think in that time too, it was just a reminder that the thing that is so cool about science,、um, when you're in research and doing your own work, is that you sort of like create this little idea that's like your baby. You know, you like spent all this time crafting it and shaping it, and then you're trying to like support it and raise it and like invest all this time in it and share it with other people. And、um, so, when you're a technician or a lab manager, for me, the Real bummer side of that was just like doing other people's work and not being able to、uh, be excited about my own questions and my own ideas. So, as you know, as a host, we typically end、uh, with a moment for the guests to address the audience on any issue they'd like.、Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? 
Yeah. So flying animals are so cool, and there's really outside of you know insects and things, but there's not that many flying animals. There's tons of bird species and tons of bats, but those are like some of the only truly volant animals that we have broadly, and that's、volant. so cool. Yeah, volant.、Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that the next time you're hanging out and you see a bird fly or see a bat fly, just like appreciate how cool that is. All right, thank you so much for being on the show, Matina. We look forward to the next episode that you host. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of the Graduates.